be seated this morning, would you please grab your copy of God's Word, in whatever form you have it, and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. So we're continuing our series this morning, a tour of the tabernacle. And you can see in your bulletin on page seven, we kind of have a visual demonstration of it there. And so far, what we've seen is as you first approach and walk into the tabernacle, you see the altar of sacrifice where God demonstrates to us that he forgives sinners. And then you would come to the basin for washing and you would see demonstrated to you visually that God cleanses sinners. And then you come into the holy place as you pass that veil And you'd see on your right the table of bread, which reminds us that God has fellowship with sinners, that he dines with them, that he communes with them. And then to your left, you'd see the golden lampstand with its light shining in that room, filling it, showing that God shines the light of his countenance upon us. And then today we come to the altar of incense. So I'm going to be reading in Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, and then verses 34 to 38. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its tops and around its side and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in the front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. And jumping down to verse 34. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacti and anjica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there, there shall be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we pray that we would be like the one to whom you look, he who is contrite in heart and humble in spirit, who trembles before your word, who sits beneath it, and whose heart and mindset is, Lord, your servant is listening. Speak to us. We pray that that would be our demeanor this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What smells trigger the most pleasant memories for you? For me, anytime I smell fresh cut grass, I'm immediately drawn back to the outfield of a ball game chasing down a fly ball. Or I'm playing goalie on the soccer field in the summer in Minnesota. 
Or anytime I smell the chlorine from a pool, I can picture my mom mixing all the chemicals together right in around Memorial Day to get the pool ready for the first swim of the summer. Anytime I smell fresh sizzling bacon, one of the best smells in the world, I remember going to Saturday morning breakfast at my great-grandparents' house every Saturday. Anytime I smell the smoke of a crackling fire, I'm transported back to the camp I grew up going to in Wisconsin. Sitting on Sunset Hill just as the sun was setting, you light a fire and you stay there all night to watch the stars come out. Smells have a way of unlocking our memory. So what smells trigger the most pleasant memories for you? And there's scientific research behind this, which shows that smells have a stronger link to the memory and emotion faculties of our brain than any other senses. And I know this because I read about it on the internet, which is the great research tool of our day. Well, perhaps because smells trigger memories, this is one of the reasons why God specifically targeted the sense of smell when he designed the tabernacle. With the tabernacle as a whole, the Lord was targeting our senses. So with our sense of sight, he targeted it with the bright colored linens, the shining metals of bronze and gold that you would see as you approached and walked in. With the table of the bread of presence, he was targeting our sense of taste as the priests every Sabbath would eat the bread in the holy place. And with a basin for washing, he targeted the sense of touch as the priest constantly felt the water wash away the dirt and dust and blood as they went about their work. But today, the Lord targets the sense of smell through the altar of incense. And this was an altar which constantly, regularly gave off a sweet-smelling aroma to anyone who was in the vicinity of the tabernacle. It gave off a unique smell, too, and a very potent one that would have lodged itself in the memory, the national memory of the people of Israel. And so with this unique scent, on this altar came this unique lesson. The altar of incense was designed by God to teach us that prayer offered by our great high priest and then through our great high priest is a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. So the altar of incense is about prayer offered by our great high priest and through our great high priest being the sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Let's first start by looking at a description of all the various details were given for this particular item in the tabernacle. And they're laid out for us in the beginning section of Exodus 30. So at the outset, as we look at the description of this altar, we see the design details in verses one through five. And I'm gonna kind of jump through these rather quickly. So in verse one, we're told that like almost all the other items, except for the gold lampstand, this item is formed and shaped out of acacia wood. That's where it got its shape and design. And then verse 2 gives us the dimensions and size. And this is not a very large piece of furniture. It would be one and a half feet long, one and a half feet wide, three feet tall. So no bigger than the end table in your living room or the nightstand next to your bed. They're not big pieces because, one, they were heavy once you overlaid them with gold, and two, they had to travel. And you know, want to be merciful to these priests a little bit. Well, at the end of verse 2, we're told that like the bronze altar, that first item you would walk into and see in the tabernacle, this altar had four protruding corners, four horns, one at each corner, woven into its design. And then verse three informs us that as with every single item inside the rooms of the tabernacle proper, it was overlaid with pure gold. So one of the things we've seen in this study of the tabernacle is that the further in you go, the more limited the access 
and the more precious the materials that are used in it. It was this principle woven into design to help people understand the question, who can dwell in the house of such a holy and glorious God? This God is great, he's majestic, he is honorable, and we see it as you move further and further in. Well, then moving on to verse four and five, we see that this altar was designed to be portable. So it has poles and hooks that the poles go through, designed into it that are overlaid with gold because often it came time to move it. So this is a very practical function. But even with that practical function, there is a theological statement being made. The tabernacle communicated to the nation of Israel that God was with them in the wilderness, but also that he was leading them through the wilderness. That they were, they were not to, to stay in one place. They were, they were moving. These were people who were pilgrims in progress, as it were. They were traveling toward that place of rest, that place that they could finally call home sweet home. So they were looking for that city which is to come, the one that was promised to them. In verse 6, we move from the design of the altar to its location. We're told very specifically where this one was located in verse 6. You should put it in front of the veil. That's the inner veil. So there's an outer veil that separates the outer court from the holy place. But then there's an inner veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. So it's set right in front of that veil, and it's above the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. So if you're to walk into the holy place, this item would be the furthest from the entrance of the holy place. It's the closest thing that comes to that final room in the tabernacle, the holy of holies. And even the way it's described, it seems to be kind of almost like acting as the threshold of the door into that holy place where God dwelled most prominently and specially. So it backs right up against the veil and right up against the Ark of the Covenant. Well, next in verse seven and eight, there's a description of the daily duties of the priest regarding this altar. Look at verse seven and eight. And Aaron, and then by extension, all the priests of Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. So every single morning, every single evening, when the sun is rising and when the sun is setting, you know that if you're a priest, your job is to go into the holy place, to check on the oil of the golden lampstand to make sure there's enough there to make sure it's burning and bright and light. And then you have to go over to the altar of incense. And make sure there's enough spices there and light them so that it is continually giving off this sweet-smelling, pleasing aroma to the Lord. So every day in the life of a priest, it was bookended by having to tend to items in the tabernacle that required a regularity, a perpetualness to them. So the fire on the altar of sacrifice had to be always burning. The light on the golden lampstand had to be always shining. And now the fragrance of the altar of incense had to be always diffusing, always emanating. So the priests in the Old Testament, they had no breaks. This was a on all the time, no days off kind of job. You never got to sit down on the job. Reminds me of like a stay-at-home mom with a lot of kids in the house. You'd never get to sit down on the job, which is significant because when the author of Hebrews describes Christ in his role of priest, they, they got to stand up all the time. Christ, when he was finished, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, in addition to their daily duties, verse 10 tells us of a unique annual duty. And this is one of the first times we get kind of a unique look into 
this day of atonement, this once a year major highlight on the calendar of Israel and what happens. Look at verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. One year, once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest would enter into the holy place with the blood of a spotless, unblemished lamb, and he would sprinkle it on the four horns of the altar. And the idea behind this was that sin has not only contaminated us, but also because of sin, it contaminates everything we touch. So under the Old Testament ceremonial system, people had the opposite of the Midas touch, right? The Midas touch, everything you touch turns to gold. Under the Old Testament ceremonial system, everything you touch turns to moral mold, as it were. That was, that's what was being communicated. And so everything needed to be purified, needed to be cleansed and consecrated, not just the people, but even the items in the tabernacle. So this was an annual duty of the priest, and we're going to see its significance later. Well, amidst these details of the altar of incense, we get two very serious and sober warnings. One of the warnings is at the end of Exodus 30 in the description of the incense that is to be used. So if you look at verse 34 to 36, the Lord gives the unique and special recipe for the incense that is to be burnt on this altar. It is a blend of four different sweet spices that combined would have produced a very potent and yet very pleasing aroma. And so if you've ever blended essential oils into a diffuser or you've walked through maybe a Yankee candle store, you kind of get an idea of a potent aroma that just fills the space. You can't not notice it. And that's what was the idea behind this uh, mix of spices. Well, lest any Israelite got any ideas, God puts a divine patent on this incense formula. God forbids the people from trying to reduplicate it or worse yet, trying to sell counterfeits of it. So look at verses 37 and 38. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. So the Lord protecting and preserving the sacredness of this particular scent and incense forbids the people from trying to reduplicate it in any way, to counterfeit it in any shape or fashion, because he wants to preserve the uniqueness of this aroma so that when the people smell it, They think of the tabernacle. They think of the altar of incense. They think of what God is doing in this special place. That's why it is holy to the Lord. And I think there's another reason for this as well, this warning. The Lord is protecting this recipe from being co-opted for consumeristic and idolatrous use. So one of the things Israel constantly struggled with was the love of money, was taking things that the Lord had used and kind of selling them, commercializing them. Think think of the money that we could make with it. We could go on Shark Tank. We could get a great investment, all these things. Or maybe there's special powers in this formula. Maybe we could use them to access all the privileges of Baal or Molech or something. So the Lord is forbidding them from any of this temptation. He was cutting it off right at the root. Well, the next warning is found back up in verse 9 of Exodus 30. Look there with me. It's connected to this, this recipe. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on this altar or a burnt offering or a grain offering and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. 
So two warnings. Do not reduplicate this formula and do not replace it with anything else. The Lord forbids any unauthorized, or I like the, the King James Version says, any strange incense. No unauthorized, no strange incense. Well, what makes it unauthorized? What makes it strange? Anything that deviates in any detail from anything that God has said is what makes it unauthorized and strange. Anything that deviates in any detail from anything that God has said is what makes it unauthorized and strange. And you see this dramatized for you in Leviticus chapter 10. Turn there if you want. I'll just summarize it for you. In Leviticus 10, first three verses, Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, who have been given all these instructions, who know all of the rules and regulations, waltz into God's holy place, up to the altar of incense, and it says they offered strange fire. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. The text doesn't tell us what was strange about it, explicitly. It doesn't tell us what was unauthorized about it. All it tells us is all we need to know, that they offered something which God had not commanded them. It doesn't say that they offered cheap frankincense, that they used old salt you know, from the kitchen at their own home. It just says that God had not commanded this. And what we see in Leviticus 10 is that they believed that they had the authority to stroll in to God's presence and God's house any way they chose and that they could deviate in some detail from what God had divinely dictated to them. And they found out real quick, real quick, that God alone has the authority to determine how he's approached and how he's worshiped. To modify a saying from C.S. Lewis, If you're looking for a religion that is convenient, that's comfortable, that lets you have it your way, I certainly do not recommend Christianity. That's not how it works. And and one of the principles we're seeing in the tabernacle is God is not tame. He's not safe. He's holy. And he will be honored by all those who approach him. And I think, to use C.S. Lewis again, that he illustrates this so well in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the holiness of God, the in one sense, the fear and trepidation we should approach him with when the kids, the Pevensey children, find out that Aslan is a lion. It says this, But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to that point. That's partly what the tabernacle is communicating to us in the way that God sets it up, that we approach him with trepidation, that we approach him as a holy God who is to be honored. Well, now that we've looked at the description of this altar, Let's consider the functions of this altar. What purpose did it serve 
in the ceremonial system of the Old Testament. I think one of the functions is very practical, very self-explanatory. The altar of incense served as the air purifier of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Perhaps in your home, you have a diffuser, you have scented candles, maybe scented plug-ins. And the purpose you have them for is so that it gives off a pleasing aroma, one that makes it enjoyable to walk into the house, one that makes it enjoyable to sit and have conversation. Well, let's be honest. You probably have those for another reason as well. You use them to counteract any actual or potential bad smells that may come into your house, which is why mine are mainly in the kids' bathroom. The tabernacle was a house surrounded by very harsh, unpleasant smells. We talked about the altar sacrifice, one of the first messages in this series. It is a busy place. And it is a place that is so busy, not just with activity, but with smells that are not pleasant. Have you ever been around a farm, slaughterhouse, a meat market? Uh, You get the idea. And so the altar of incense, I think, is set up in one sense to counter the smells of the altar of sacrifice. So that God's house also has a pleasing aroma to it amidst all the other smells that you might meet there. Well, in addition to that practical function, I think there's the spiritual function as well, even in the Old Testament. The altar of incense was designed as a call to and a picture of prayer. It was designed to be a call to and a picture of prayer. It was to be an altar of prayer for the priests who served in this place. Now, if you notice in our text, there was nothing, the, the word prayer is not mentioned. The practice of prayer is not mentioned in this text. So where am I getting this from? Well, this is where we need to utilize the tried and true Bible study principle that scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. If you, if you have a question about one section, keep reading on to other sections. And the, the principle of scripture interpreting scripture teaches us that we should search out more clear, more explicit passages that can help shine light on the full meaning of less clear, less explicit passages. And so let me apply that principle. Let me show you some of the places you can go to see that. One place to understand the function of the altar of incense you can go to is Genesis 12.8. So in Genesis 12.8, this is Abraham. He's been called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He's journeying towards where God's going to show him. And he's near Bethel. And it says, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So before altars were ever used in the tabernacle, altars were used by Abraham and later Isaac and Jacob to be places of prayer to the Lord. Here's another passage, Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2. This is David writing this, and he says this in Psalm 141, verse 1 and 2. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So David writing this knows the tabernacle intimately. He spent a lot of time around it. And he understands innately that the altar of incense, as the incense rises, it's a picture of prayer. And so he is saying, Lord, let my prayers be like that. Let it reach your ear. And I think the passage that seals the deal is Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. We know from Hebrews that the earthly dwelling place of God was a picture and a shadow of the heavenly dwelling place of God. So what goes on in the heavenly dwelling place of God? Well, Revelation 8 gives us a little window into it. This is verse 3 and 4 of Revelation 8. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer 
with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So when you combine those texts together, they shine, in my opinion, undeniable clarity on the function of this altar. The altar of incense was to be an altar of prayer. So every morning, every evening, sun rising, sun setting, the priests go in and they are to be about not just the lighting of incense, but the ministry of prayer. That as the incense is lit, as the aroma wafts up, as the smoke ascends to the heavens, their prayers were to go from the earthly house of God to the heavenly house of God. And they were to do that as representatives on behalf of the people. We're going to talk about the priest's garments later on. And one of the garments, the high priest's garments, it has all of the emblems of the tribes of Israel on them. They were to be representing the people, bearing the names of the people on their heart as they went about their work. And part of that took place in the ministry of prayer. Now, this was not to say that John and Jane Israelite couldn't pray. Everyone could pray. David is calling upon the name of the Lord out in the wilderness. But the priests in this time period had a unique position with unique access to God. So they had a special calling to pray to God on behalf of the people. Well, we looked at the description look at the function, let's consider the symbolism of the altar of incense. What sweet-smelling implications ascend from this altar of incense for us? Well, the altar of incense helps us see that God, like a good heavenly father, desires and delights in our dependence upon him. God, like a good heavenly father, desires and delights in our dependence upon him. Yes, the tabernacle displayed to the people the distance, the chasm that exists between a holy God and a sinful people. But as surely as it did that, it also displayed the nearness of God, that God draws near to his people. A gracious God draws near to his undeserving, redeemed people. So think of the tabernacle as visually demonstrating the tension between two ideas, the transcendence of God on the one hand and the imminence of God on the other hand. Transcendence meaning he is the high and holy one who dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen him or can see him. And yet at the same time, you have the tension of the imminence of God, the nearness of God. He dwells in the midst of his people. What nation is there that has a God that is so near to us as we do to our God whenever we call upon him? That was Israel's kind of tension that they lived in with the tabernacle. So for all the priests that served in Israel, with the exception of the high priest once a year on one, one event, The altar of incense was the closest that one would ever get to the Holy of Holies, to the throne room of God. Everyone except Aaron the high priest, this was the closest they came, right up to the doorstep of the veil with the cherubim woven into it. Now, could this be visually teaching us that never is there a time when we draw near to God and he draws near to us than when we are communing with him in prayer? This is the closest we come to earth and heaven touching now as we await the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. By specifically designing an altar of prayer and placing it in his earthly house. Remember, God is the designer of this. We're learning things about him based off what he does, how he designs things. God is not just issuing a demand to pray. He is offering an invitation. He is welcoming his people. He's drawing them in to pray to him. God is showing through this altar that he, like a father, desires and delights in his children's dependence upon him. Remember the first two words 
that Jesus shocked his disciples with when he taught them to pray? Our Father. Jesus was, as if, as if it were, he was saying, my Father is your Father when you're in Christ. Jesus was bringing the people into the relationship that he had with his Father. That's what prayer is. Prayer is getting to share in the love of the Father for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. Our Father. Prayer is first and foremost a child of God coming in a spirit of dependence before their true and ultimate heavenly father. And what a heavenly father is offered to us in the gospel. His is one whose door is always open. My kids often come when I'm studying and they find the door locked for for good reason. The father's door is never locked. He's never too busy. His ear is always attentive. He's never distracted by his phone or anything else. He can hear everyone at the same time as if you were the only one speaking to him in that moment. His time for his children is always limitless. He's an infinite God who has infinite time for you. And his love toward his children is always boundless. You cannot exhaust it. If we earthly fathers, being fallen and sinful, know how to give good gifts to our children who ask, how much more so will a heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? Prayer is the perfect meeting place between heavenly father and his children. Because we come to him in our neediness, in our insufficiency, in our finiteness. And God meets us in his infinite, inexhaustible, all-sufficient omnipotence. It is the perfect meeting place between creature and creator. And in prayer, it is the perfect combination. God gets the glory as the mighty giver, and we get the gifts as the needy receiver. That's what prayer is. Well, as good as that sounds... We have to admit there's a major obstacle between us and God when it comes to prayer. Because the altar of incense shows us that because of our sin, there is no supplication without substitution. There is no supplication prayer without substitution, without an atoning sacrifice. And that way of saying it is simply a clever way of repackaging a truth we've seen over and over in the tabernacle. Because of your sin, you can't come in. But if someone takes your place, then you can seek God's face. That's what the tabernacle is teaching over and over. Because of your sin, you can't come in. But if a sacrifice takes your place, then you can seek God's face. So in order for the altar of incense to become the altar of prayer, what had to happen to it every single year? Every single year it had to be cleansed and consecrated by the blood of a spotless, unblemished lamb. Every year. In the original paradise, the first tabernacle in Eden, Adam and Eve had direct, unmediated access to God. They didn't have to go through any elaborate ceremony. There was no process to enter Eden. They were there. There were no no trespassing signs. There weren't any beware of angels with flaming sword signs. It was just unhindered, undiluted fellowship with God. Now, that is a difficult reality to describe. And it's even harder for us to fathom because all we've ever known is living east of Eden. All we've ever known is being fallen people in a fallen world. And you see the effects of our sin and the relational rupture that it creates when you think about something like the practice of prayer. Sin damages and distorts prayer. It even stops it up. Sin produces prayerlessness. In our self-sufficiency, we are often prayerless because who needs God? I have my money, I have my resources, I have everything I need. In our entitlement... 
we are prayerless because why should I ask God for what he already owes me anyway? He has to give it to me. In our shame, we are prayerless because we don't think we've earned enough credits to come into the presence of God. We don't deserve to approach him. Well, think of the ways that sin has produced a myriad of counterfeit forms of prayer in our culture. I'm sending positive thoughts your way. What can positive thoughts do? I know I got the promotion because I kept visualizing myself getting it and speaking it out into the universe. What good is that? Good things are coming my way because I meditated around my lighted crystals under full moon last night. Serious, I mean, these are real things I found on social media, sadly. Or you go to a priest, contemporary priest, confess your sins. They say, if you want to be forgiven, repeat this spiritual incantation over and over again as you rub these beads on this necklace. As if you can manipulate God through some incantation or formula. All of those are forms of either playing God or trying to manipulate God. And God is not tame. He's not safe. He will not be manipulated or trifled with. He loves to be depended on. He desires and delights in our dependence upon him, but not our manipulation of him or trying to play him. And even when we do pray as Christians in Christ, I think I'm not alone in saying, I struggle greatly with prayer. I think there's nothing, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that I find everything in the Christian life easier than prayer. And I think he's right. So often prayer feels all duty and no delight. You come to God cold, a fire that cannot get started at all. Or our prayers sound like we're telling a genie our wishes and hopes that he'll grant them. Or perhaps you're a 911 prayer, and the only time you pray is when there's an emergency. God is the community emergency services. Other than that, you don't pick up the phone. The way to the altar of prayer points out our need for a Savior, but so do our prayer lives. We need our prayer lives to be saved as well. We need a Savior who prays for us and in whose name we can pray. So the altar of incense shows us that in Christ, we have a praying substitute Savior. We have a supplicating substitute Savior for us. So the blood that purified the altar of incense and the priests who ministered at the altar praying on behalf of the people find their fulfillment in Christ and Christ alone. In Hebrews 9, 11 to 14, the author of Hebrews tells us that there is no longer any need to perform the purification ceremonies of the Old Testament. All those regular, perpetual, annual forms of purifying the things in the Old Testament were but a shadow and the substance has come in Christ. The blood of Christ makes all who come to him by faith perfectly, unalterably pure. His blood is potent and it purifies all that come under it. Hebrews 9, 11. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Not daily, not annual, eternal redemption. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean could purify them so that they were outwardly clean, how much more so will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The New Testament is summed up as Yes, this in the Old Testament, but how much more so in Christ? How much greater in Christ? And there's more. You know, it's like infamous. But wait, there's more. The Savior who purified us 
ever lives to plead for us. The Savior who purified us perfectly, unalterably, ever lives to plead for his people. His ministry of substitution is finished, perfectly, sufficiently so. But his ministry of intercession at the right hand of the Father continues on and on for us, even now. Think about it. right now, Christ is praying for you. Christ prays for you even now. Hebrews 7, 25 tells us so. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ prays for you even now. Romans 8, 34 tells us so. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you. Christ prays for you even now. 1 John 2, 1 tells us so. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if any of us does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is advocating, interceding always for you. Christ prays for you even now. So when we are feeling crushed by the condemnation of our lack of prayer, when we're feeling weighed down by our pathetic prayers, what is our comfort? It's this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Nothing can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8, part of the logic for why nothing can separate you from the love of Christ is because Christ is always praying for you. It is not because somehow you have the ability and resources in and of yourself to stay in the love of Christ, but because his prayers keep you there. Think of his praying for Peter. Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Not Peter, I think you're gonna do great. I'm cheering you on. No, Peter's done for, but Christ prays for him. How many prayers in heaven or how many times in heaven will we see We'll look back over life and see that moment and Christ, I was praying for you. I was praying for you. I was praying for you, sustaining you. Even when we are prayerless, he remains prayerful for us. Robert Murray McShane tells us what comfort and fearlessness we should draw from this. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me now. Well, finally, the altar of incense is a reminder that we can pray only in the name of Christ. You can pray only in the name of Christ. All prayer that is not offered in the name of Christ, all approaches to the heavenly throne of God in our own way, our own name, our own method, is the stench of strange and unauthorized incense. Which is to say that only the prayers of Christ and only prayers in Christ's name are a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. So if you're outside Christ, the first prayer that you must pray, the prayer that God delights to hear and answer is, God be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm a great sinner in need of a great savior. That prayer, when prayed from the heart, will never go unanswered. And from that point on, you never move beyond praying in the name of Christ, only ever deeper into that reality. To pray in the name of Christ It's not about using the secret spiritual phrase that unlocks and opens God's ears as if you're talking to Alexa or Siri. 
right? At my house, we have th- that name, Alexa, is used constantly because my kids are trying to access the device. Or I said, Siri, my phone would go off right now. That's not what the phrase in the name of Christ is. It's not some spiritual secret unlocking of God's ears. Praying in the name of Christ is to not base my hope and expectation of being heard upon the merits of my good works or my good prayers. It is, rather, to pray putting all my trust in the merits of Christ and his righteousness and his intercession for me. To pray in Christ's name is to seek refuge in the Son, God's beloved Son, the one whom the Father delights in and loves to hear. That's what it means to pray in the name of Christ. So I would encourage you in your own prayers that the best thing you can do is to pray God's word back to him. God is privy to his own handwriting. He loves to hear his words prayed back to him. So transpose God's word into personalized prayers. You can take something like the Psalms. It's a great place to start and pray Psalm 1. Lord, keep me from the counsel of the wicked. Keep me from standing in the way of scoffers and seating in the, in the seat of sinners. And help me to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. Transpose God's word back to him in personalized prayer for you and for others. The altar of incense was designed by God to teach us that prayer offered by Christ and through Christ is a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Let's pray.